Welcome, listeners. This is episode six of the Fancy Lab Code Guild. I'm Ali. And I'm Guy. Today, our special guest is Aaron McConaughey, professional engineer. But before we get started, I do want to mention that this episode is sponsored by SciFind. It's a scientific collaboration network. SciFind is a platform where scientists can share empirical information like methods, protocols, or expertise. Scientists that join SciFind can connect with their peers to troubleshoot in either a broad or narrow discipline. We can grow your reputation in more ways than just papers. Our guest today is Aaron McConaughey, a principal in mechanical engineering with AROP, an employee-owned global engineering, advisory, and planning consulting firm that focuses on all aspects of the built environment. Aaron's passion for finding integrated design solutions through a collaborative design process began with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in structural engineering from UC Berkeley. As she rose in leadership, she has served on AROP's global trustee board, was named to be one of 40 AROP fellows responsible for uplifting technical excellence within the firm, spearheaded the startup of its America's Region Diversity and Inclusion Initiative, and served on the leadership teams for a number of capacity building training programs. In addition to project work, she now leads AROP's global initiative around adopting whole life carbon approaches to both new construction and existing building decarbonization. She's a professional engineer in California and Colorado, and during her 26 years with AROP, Erin has been responsible for the design leadership of many significant projects, including projects here in LA, such as the Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine, the LA Memorial Coliseum renovation, the Broad Museum, and the Broad Contemporary Art Museum at LACMA, as well as many others. Let's give a warm welcome to Erin. Howdy, how are you? <laughs> good, how are you today? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. Um, so before we even get started into the talk, um, I'm a molecular biologist, so I don't know anything about engineering. <laughs> so the first thing I want to know is what is engineering? What are some of like the different classifications of it? Like I know there's mechanical, electrical, structural. How do they kind of differ from each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so, so you're a scientist. So uh -huh. science is about finding and well, it's about observing what exists and finding new insights to exp and observe and explain kind of what we see. So basically developing new knowledge. What engineering really is, is, is applying science technology and the new knowledge that we learn from our scientific colleagues to practical applications. That's the way I like to see it. Mm -hmm. So all of the different, you know, um, you know, adjectives that come before the word engineering just describe sort of the space that you're working in, in terms mm -hmm. of transferring that knowledge into practical application. So I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm specifically in the HVAC design area, but there are other kinds of mechanical mm -hmm. engineers. Mechanical engineers basically look at, you know, conversions of energy or heat transfer, mm -hmm. right? So uh, structural engineers, so uh, they tend to look at buildings or or structures so i always like to joke with my friends who are structural engineers the mechanical engineers like to see things move and structural engineers like to make sure they don't <laughs> <laughs> i like that what's a what's a so but then there's like a thing like civil engineering yeah which is which which that's more like a topicality versus it's like structure is structure mechanicals me mechanisms but civil is so so, so civil <laughs> engineering historically came out of a sort of large-scale development site development so most of my civil engineer colleagues will work on uh, site planning water infrastructure road infrastructure things like that and then structural engineering is technically, academically, a subset of civil engineering. 
Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, and then we've got our electrical engineering colleagues who are worried about, you know, electrons running around in wires <laughs> somehow. It's all magic to me. Um, and then, you know, we have computer science and technology engineers, biotech engineers, all kinds of engineers are out there in order to, you know, kind of serve this purpose to society. And mm -hmm. a subset of them who actually work in the built environment actually have to become professional engineers, like, like you said before. Mm -hmm. And that's a restricted mm -hmm. category that requires a license that's mm -hmm. governed by the state. It's kind of like architects, like they have their mm -hmm. tiers as well. Exactly. Um, and yeah, you've, I mean, we know you've worked in the sustainability space. Uh, how would you define sustainability? What does that mean in the, in the modern world? Yeah, so most people point back to the 1987 Brundtland Commission, which produced the report called Our Common World, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and there they defined it as sustainable development is development that supports the needs of the present while also uh, n without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's kind of the high level generic sort of definition of sustainability that's, that's been at play and that has been generally informing most of the work since 1987. I think that, uh, but I think we need to understand it's not a new concept, right? Mm -hmm. Sustainability, you know, indigenous people were lived in a way, that, you know, gently with the earth uh, yeah. in a synergistic way that was sustainable. And what mm -hmm. we're really trying to recover is how do we do that as people in modern society? Yeah, that kind of reminded me of this book that I just started reading. So I'm in chapter one, Cradle to Cradle. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it talks about that actually in the intro is that as humans, we kind of deviated away from what it's supposed to be that everything by like ev all systems should be like in synergy with nature instead of kind of going away from it, which is what we created through the Industrial Revolution, I would say, yeah. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, I mean, there's sort of a long history there. I don't know if we want to go into it here, yeah. but, you know, but, but Cradle to Cradle is an excellent example of a mm -hmm. particular subset of sustainability, yeah. which is circular economy, right? Yeah. Where waste is food for some other process. Mm. And so, you know, when we really look at the, the breadth of sort of the sustainability uh, sort of movement you know there's some folks who are focused on net zero carbon solutions there's other mm. folks who are focused on circular economy which also helps with decarbonization efforts yeah. others mm. are focused much more on health and well-being mm -hmm. and then obviously you know all of this needs to be understood in the context that the people that we are serving with development are mm. our people. Yeah. And so, you know, even economists like Kate Rayworth with mm. Donut Economics yeah. are really talking about how do we stay within the planetary boundaries mm. of the capacity of the earth to absorb essentially yeah. our waste, <laughs> um, but also meet the needs of all of the population. Yeah, and so the yeah. thing that I like about the, the Brundtland definition is people have historically thought about it as being an intergenerational mm. equity sort of commitment. But it also says that we're supposed to be meeting the needs of the present. And, mm. and what we really need to understand from an environmental justice point of view is how do we do that now mm. for those people who are being affected by climate change or by toxic wastes mm. that are being created by the society that we've chosen to create together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so all of that all together, we need to understand as mm. part of sustainability. Yeah, yeah. Where do you think one, I mean, it's such a huge space, where do you think one should begin? Where do you think is the best place to start um, when tackling uh, sustainability, either liter literature or um, well, 
I mean, I think we all we all start at home, right? Mm. And I think and I think where the United States started was with energy efficiency. Mm. And it all started in the 1970s when we had a different kind of, you know, high gas cost, mm-hmm. gas restriction time period mm. that is quite reminiscent of what's going on right now. Yeah. You know, when I was when I was a little, very little, I remember sitting in line waiting for gas on our day to get gas um, with wow. my uncle wow. um, in, yeah. in, in the 1970s. And so coming out of that in the United States, there's a real focus on energy efficiency. Mm. And California became the first state to create an energy efficiency code for buildings yeah. that then the American Society of you know, Air Conditioning, Refrigeration and Why and California? Well, I think, well, at the time, yeah. Jerry Brown was the governor. Mm. And so, you know, definitely had sort of forward-looking understandings. Mm. Uh, President Jimmy Carter put solar collectors on the White House at that time. Oh, wow. So people were quite conscious of wanting to not be so dependent on oil from yeah. a national security point of view. And and that required energy efficiency. Mm. Um, and then And then, you know, you know, that continued. It continued to be sort of a global initiative. Uh, for for many many years, and I mm. think what we really saw was that energy efficiency side of things um, dominated here in the United States because we started so early, and there was less attention on the climate change mm. um, sort of topic. Even though you know, even as far back as Lyndon Johnson, mm-hmm. presidents have been warned about the risks associated mm-hmm. with climate change. Mm. Um, it wasn't really until the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, you know, the IPCC, mm-hmm. you know, started publishing starting in the 1990s that and, and, and especially with, you know, Vice President Gore yeah. coming out with an inconvenient truth that it really got a lot of public attention that that we need to do something about this and quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if yeah. you were even if you were playing Pascal's wager and saying, OK, I mean, I don't believe in this, but let's say climate change was not real. Even if you were waging against that, wouldn't you still want to live in a society where like things are clean and you're not like producing waste and stuff? Like even if it wasn't the case, you'd still want to live in a place like that. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And that's really, you know, the other the other two things that happened in 1987 that's quite interesting Mm -hmm. is number one, um, the international community agreed in the what's called the Montreal Protocol mm-hmm. um, to stop the use of certain types of refrigerants um, in order to help shrink the ozone hole, yeah, right? The chlorofluorocarbons. The, yeah, yeah, the halogenated uh, yeah, yeah, refrigerants, yeah. and and part of that was because people saw you know evidence with their own eyes that yeah. that ozone layer was getting bigger, uh, smaller and smaller. Yeah. Right, we had a big hole that we yeah, needed to resolve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the international community was uh, able to create uh, an environmental treaty, and it's mm-hmm. actually the most successful environmental treaty. The, the hole is the smallest it's been mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. it was measured since wow. ni- in 1982. Yeah. So, so that was quite significant. It shows that th- when the international community takes things seriously, um, we can mobilize efforts to do something about yeah. it. The other thing that happened in 1987 is that um, the United Church of Christ here in the United States actually published a report uh, that that linked um sort of race to uh toxic waste Mm. um by Mm. overlaying maps of where the the worst toxic pollution was versus you know population maps and what they found was um was that uh, black and brown people were disproportionately 
located close to pollution wow. emissions. Yeah. And that was the start of the environmental justice movement. And that yeah. report created the phrase environmental justice. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so the thing that we need to understand is that, you know, there's this convergence between environmentalism, which was about preserving nature for our recreational um, appreciation, mm -hmm. and environmental justice, which was about sort of in intra-generational equity mm. concerns mm -hmm. associated wow. with sustainability. And I think yeah. the thing that we need to understand is we need to resolve both of those together. Mm. And some of the more recent sort of moves by the UN with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is a much more holistic sort of 17 point understanding mm -hmm. of sustainability and sustainable development takes into account those sort of social equity, community resilience, um, and, and poverty reduction mm -hmm. aspects of sustainability as well as sort of the climate action, mm -hmm. energy efficiency, transition to renewable side of things. Yeah. I think that that's a very important paradigm that we've kind of seen arise from the international community over the past 10 years. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, interesting, yeah. There's, I mean, there's, when the international community does come together, they can solve things like the ozone layer. Um, but then what do you think were some great failures in engineering or sustainability like for example they have those um those like green uh, towery things and then they don't like <laughs> match the water drainage system and then all the plants that grow on it get like and then well mm. it just becomes a rotten kind of uh, tower <laughs> like that <laughs> what are some of those yeah i mean i think it's always easy in hindsight to see how you failed, mm. right? And I think that the the demands of, of engineering and design is to um, bring together enough diversity of perspective and enough people who are willing to dissent or catastrophize during mm. design so that you can predict how things might fail, mm. right? And so our greatest failure as engineers is failure of imagination mm. and failure to, to kind of plot out what the trajectories might be. So legally speaking, folks like me who are professional engineers, when we sign contracts and whatnot, we are bound to what's known as a standard of care, which means mm -hmm. would we, did we, uh, you know, uh, proceed in a way that was reasonable based on the amount of information available in industry at that time mm -hmm. right and so you know so so looking back you know certainly i have designed buildings that have been reliant on natural gas mm -hmm. right and we're in a moment now in los angeles where our um, ladwp is about to create 100 percent renewable electricity consistent with the state's mandate that all of California will have 100% renewable electricity. I didn't know when I sort of designed yes. those buildings that that was going to be available to us mm. by 2030, by 2035, yeah. right? Yeah. So would I have advised my clients differently? Maybe, but at the time it was the lowest cost option that for making sense. heating for them, right? Yeah. So is that a failure of imagination? I, you know, it, Possibly, you know, and, 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 you know, I think now we're in the moment where we have to plan for that transition mm -hmm. across the entire yeah. globe, right? Yeah. Would you really call this failure? I don't, in my, in my perspective, I would just call this just a lack of, like, it, it's, well, it's something, imagination. It's, it's I something, guess, yeah, yeah it it's like, that. I see how you put it. I, I <laughs> yeah. don't know if I would word this failure. Like, I, I'm just like trying to think about it myself because 
I would just see it in a way that it's a, it's a future that you we didn't we you have to predict the future in that way. You well, see my point? And so to some extent, you know, if you are the designers of mm -hmm. the built environment, you also need to be affecting the future and shaping the mm. future. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, and this is where the play between the scientific community yeah. and the engineering community, right? The scientific community, you know, you know, you, you have your own ways of needing to acquire funding, but yeah. the engineering community is sort of a project by project basis in terms of contracting, right? Yeah. And you're serving a you're serving a client, yeah. right? But no, I I and love and your so, example. You know, yeah. you you have to meet the needs of that client yeah. within the budget of that client. Um, which is why we really need this sort of more national, more global sort mm. of approach, especially to things that are, you know, shared common good, like decarbonization fundamentally improves um, public health, right? Improves accessibility and affordability of energy mm -hmm. because we're not constantly having to pull, you know, yeah. fossil fuels out of the ground and burning yeah. them. And like the climate change, uh, and climate one. change, yeah, yeah. you know, in terms of, in, you know, the, the survivability yeah. of humanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but okay, <laughs> like, nice. uh, how? Would, okay, but <laughs> I feel like we kind of made it. Like with that question, I want to also understand how would you define failure, uh, like catastrophic failure in Aaron's eyes? Because some, a lot of scientists, for example, that we've had on this show, mm -hmm. don't. Th there, some would say I don't even think there's such thing. Like failure is in a way to learn. So would you think, is there failure in your eyes, would you say? So, so engineers don't have the luxury of saying that failure alone, you know, is, is a way to learn. So uh, in the engineering profession, certainly in mm -hmm. my organization, we have, um, you know, uh, quality assurance procedures that are verified every couple of years um, mm -hmm. by ISO, right? Mm. So, so we have a, a process of doing design reviews and critiques at mm -hmm. different stages of the project in order to make sure that we catch any failures or mistakes because mm -hmm. people inevitably make mistakes, but that mm -hmm. we catch them during the design by using the experience and quite frankly expanded imagination of catastrophe from our senior <laughs> engineers yeah. to catch people. And what I'll say a lot of times to our junior engineers is, I know it feels bad when you have so many markups, mm. but you know, I just don't want you to make the same mistakes as I did. I want you to be more creative and make more newer mm. mistakes, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I think you know we have to make it okay to make mistakes, and mm -hmm. we have because we because they know that they are protected by um, the reviews that you mm. know set that mm -hmm. standard of care, right? Yeah. That somebody more senior looked at it. Mm -hmm. And so we're ready to uh, to build it. Yeah. It does make engineers a little bit more conservative, however, right? Mm. From a liability point of view, yeah. we have to be concerned about that. But we are trying to avoid failures while still seeking innovation. Mm. And so it's a fine line that requires a community, quite frankly, in order to agree that a way forward mm. is, is the right way forward and the calculation mm. methodologies that we've pursued are the right ones. And mm. so... We need to collectively be bold and co collectively invest yeah. in sort of the research and methods for design. Mm. So what do you think yeah. would uh, differentiate a, a bad engineer from a good one and a good one from a great one? Well, I think, you know, a bad engineer just does what they did last time mm. without mm -hmm. critical thinking. Mm. Because, um, you know, in the built environment, while there are th very many things that are repeatable from project to project, everyone is unique. You know, yeah. the site that it's on is unique. 
possibly the jurisdiction that is, is unique, mm. the climate may be unique. And so I think a bad engineer would be one that like assumes assumes <laughs> assumes <laughs> assumes they know they know in advance what they're going to be doing as opposed yeah. to approaching it with a fresh learner's mind every time, mm. obviously building on the experience that you have from the yeah. past. So I would say that's a bad engineer. I think a good engineer does do that, comes to a problem with curiosity, comes to a problem with engagement, mm. listens to their client, you know, and tries to create yeah. the right solution because, you know, you're always, you know, buildings are very complex things where all of those different engineering types plus architects mm. plus, you know, landscape architects and all kinds of other folks, you need, design is, the collaborative exercise of imagining a thing that doesn't yet exist wow. and documenting yeah. mm. it well enough that. so that it can mm. right I and so it. it's yeah. an iterative process to keep working with each other until everybody's needs are met mm. right and so design requires change you yeah. can't lock into your thing too early because it isolates the ability of others to get what they need within wow. the design process. I love the way you put this. Yeah, like engin more engineers should like it's mm -hmm. the because like, I'm I'm studying for lead right now and mm -hmm. literally the first part of lead talks about that the integration mm -hmm. concept of like working together. Yeah, exactly. That's, and you said it even better than how I read it. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. so that, that, that's 26 years working for a multidisciplinary <laughs> firm, right? No, you it's know, amazing. It's, it's yeah. a lot more fun when you're doing that with friends. Yeah, that's really and, cool. And the great engineer. Mm -hmm. Ooh. <laughs> that transcends. <laughs> we have one right here sitting on, a, on our. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, I think. I think we all all aspire to some form of excellence, right? You mm. know, I talked about quality assurance before, and one of the mm. one of the greatest debates. Uh, you know, my boss said, "Well, I want you to put you in charge of quality." And I'm like, I don't want to be in charge of quality. That's kind of mundane. Let me be in charge. <laughs> let me be in charge of excellence. And ooh. he's like, "Ooh, <laughs> perfection." <laughs> I love that. And excellence is not perfection, but mm. excellence is what you strive for because, you know, our founder said, like, like, why do we strive for integration? We strive for into like uh, integration because sort of the stimulation and excellence of the pursuit is actually good for us. Mm. It's actually good for our growth, our souls yeah. to be striving for that perfection, even though we know we can never achieve it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are, I think the interesting thing for me is what are some misconceptions about engineers? What do people assume about them? Uh, like mistakes that they might make or well I mean generally they assume that we're kind of boring and unimaginative mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I don't think that's the case I mean I think that engineers are however very detail focused yeah. right and um, and and you know there's there's the old joke you know there's a guy who's got lost in a storm in a hot hot air balloon mm. ends up you know over a desert somewhere sees a guy on the ground and uh you know says hey wh where am i and then the guy's just like you know you're right here <laughs> 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 like that's not very useful you know <laughs> i guess i guess by having just shared that you can tell that at least this engineer has not got the ability to tell a joke very well <laughs> um but some do uh, so no, anyways well. the uh uh you know, I think I think engineers, um, 
engineers sometimes do not attract to themselves the level of um, sort of uh, notoriety or public speaking mm -hmm. that maybe would be beneficial in public policy. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you see the classic example that, you know, it took uh, Richard Feynman after the fact to articulate why it was that the O-ring problem with the space shuttle explosion mm. um, was the problem, whereas those engineers within the hierarchy of NASA mm. were unable on the day of the potential launch to articulate that to their bosses in mm. a clear enough way that a lay person could understand. Wow. Mm. Yeah, and so yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that we really need to build up in our engineers is not only the understanding of the professional ethics and, and sort of moral responsibility that when you design and, and you're designing things that could put people's lives at risk, that you have a moral obligation mm. to speak up for their protection mm. and to to learn the skills that allow you to do that. You know, in engineering school, you don't always have to take, um, you know, public speaking classes. You know, you might have to take a technical communications class mm -hmm. about how you write your reports and how you be very clear. But I think, especially in the context of, of climate action, mm -hmm. engineers and scientists need to develop communication mm -hmm. skills oh, that make yeah, everything yeah. accessible Absolutely. to the public yeah. because we're the ones who have the knowledge of what needs to happen we're the ones who know the technology's already there and you don't have to be afraid, but people mm. need to understand it well enough so that we can mobilize the public will yeah. in mm. order to support public policies that lead to a better future. Mm. I, I wow. think the, the, one of the funny things about that is actually that in some country, I think it, it depends on the culture, a lot of the political class is also engineers. Mm. Like in China, for example, mm -hmm. a lot of the party there, they're like, by trade engineers or mm -hmm. like in Germany we had Angela Merkel mm -hmm. and she's like a chemical engineer so you yeah. actually have s these engineers leading countries and um, I think there's one of the things I like about that is there's something refreshing about the pragmatism correct <laughs> which mm. is kind exactly. of nice yeah. exactly. um, uh, but at the same time I, I get it I think that sometimes uh, like pragmatism might get you into other uh, kerfuffles. I think exactly. you need a, you exactly. need also <laughs> diplomacy, which I think engineers probably maybe from no. my peers I see lack, like the diplomacy. Yeah. How because if you're too pragmatic, I think with especially when you're dealing with politics, mm -hmm. you need to know how to address different issues in a in a more of just like this is the facts and that's how it should be ease people in it yeah. and what would you yeah. say well, what's your thoughts on well, that? well and, and this kind of comes back to the question of what's a great engineer right <laughs> so a great engineer can can quickly move from sort of the detail level of logistics mm. to sort of a high level of why yeah right yeah. and i think and i think that's the important thing mm. is because you know kind of the world of ideas mm. is as important as the world of details. And um, we're heavily changed in engineering to go deeper and deeper and deeper into smaller and smaller and smaller segments of reality. Um, you know, that's mm. what PhDs are all about, yeah. right? No offense. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, you become an Love expert it. on a very yeah. small thing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, in order to solve larger world scale problems, mm -hmm. you, you need to have a much broader view. And so, you know, yeah. understanding and, and getting input from other disciplines mm -hmm. through engagement with them or um, mm. through reading as you're, yeah. you're doing some other reading, it sounds mm. like. 
Um, those yeah. are very important things in yeah. order to keep your views broad, but your activities, you know, mm. in the realm of where you're professionally capable. Yeah, yeah. I think that kind of also aligns well with scientists because I've never seen, like, I barely see, I don't know if it exists, scientists that are in politics as well. I don't, uh, have you ever? Oh, there was one them? recently, but, oh, really? uh, well, in the, Bi in the Biden cabinet, Eric uh, Lander, but no longer. Yeah, that's um, also very uncommon. I think it aligns well with, like, uh, scientists. But, Aaron, so I want to go back in time a bit with you and talk about your bachelor's uh, you went to UC Berkeley, amazing school, and any reason for that decision? Um, yeah, so both my parents were teachers, mm. and from the time I was very, very little, they felt like it was important for people to go away for their own maturing, mm -hmm. to go away from mm. home, to go to college. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was at the other end of the state. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> at a great engineering school. <laughs> I mean, Berkeley. Yeah, um, it's and the thing that I liked about it um, was that um, it was a full university and mm. that I would have access to classes that were not engineering classes. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I looked at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which, you know, had a great engineering school, but it was mm. a little isolated. It also didn't have an urban environment that it mm. was part of. Yeah. Um, and so I felt like, you know, UC Berkeley would, would be a good challenge mm. and, and good for me. Yeah. You know? The interesting part that I liked about your, as an engineer myself by training, is that you had, you started as a mechanical engineer, which I kind of want to open a bracket and ask you why. Okay. Uh, so why? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, because... Yeah. When I was little, I was always taking things apart with my grandfather and <laughs> mostly putting them back together correctly. Ooh. Oh, that's the, that's the most important one. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, uh, and when I was in junior high school, my, uh, my dad had uh, gotten me a slot at a summer camp with the Society of Women mm -hmm. Engineers. Yeah. And it seemed like the mechanical engineers kind of did stuff in a bunch of other of the engineering disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, well, if I go in as a mechanical engineer and I like something else better, then I can always change. But, um, but otherwise, I would get to... You know, there was a course in civil engineering. There was a course in electrical engineering. Mm. You know, it seemed yeah. to kind of cover a bunch of other things. All right, close bracket. Okay. <laughs> now that main question is, I love your mix of doing mechanical engineering, then transitioning to your master's in engineering, uh, to the listeners who don't know, in UC Berkeley as well, yeah. and you did structural engineering. Yes. I think these are very, like, I can, and I love, I can see that mix goes greatly with your actual career now, being yeah. in the built environment. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so at UC Berkeley, you could get a minor in structural engineering, mm -hmm. and uh, and and so it was very interesting. You know, I, I did the steel bridge contest with mm. uh, ASCE, and um, you took concrete courses. It was very yeah. interesting, and then I got very interested in sort of concrete as thermal mass for modulating internal um, environments. Mm. Um, I actually got sort of kicked out of UC Berkeley early because <laughs> uh, I kept taking all these extra like credits because oh, so I, wow, yeah. I also had a religious studies minor yeah so and I took social welfare courses because I was working with a homeless services organization so I was like taking yeah. all these spare credits and um, at the time the UC Berkeley engineering school was impacted so when I went in for my my final years counseling Mm. you know may before my senior year mm -hmm. they're like you have too many credits you're done you're gonna <laughs> take, you're, they're like you're gonna take these two courses next semester and then you're out and so i was like 
but Ooh. I was gonna but I was gonna take a bunch more yeah. like structural engineering courses yeah, after yeah. that to kind of boost up my mm -hmm. capability. So then it was like, okay, well, I guess I just have to apply yeah. for the master's degree. But why structural? Were you thinking of getting into the built environment after and the design, or y yeah, did yeah. it just fall into your lap? No, I th you know, I think there's definitely a direction towards towards that so way of, of would, thinking. Would, can I, I mean, say it's more of know. a passion that kind of strikes well, you towards having that? No, I think I wouldn't say I wouldn't say passion. Mm. Uh, you know, I think we ended up falling into these things to some extent. Yeah, <laughs> and it worked amazingly. So that's why, because the reason why I ask, and I, I think it's important for uh, a lot of the listeners who are usually in the like getting their pursuing their degrees mm -hmm. or aspiring mm -hmm. to get into. It, I think it's important because we are starting at a young age, myself included, at that time, mm -hmm. and you don't really know what you're getting into after because I, I actually call the mechanical engineer just by joke like the joker because mm -hmm. you like if you play cards it's like the joker you can apply it to anything mm -hmm. there's so many disciplines mechanical engineers can get into space applications yeah. uh, so combining some fields like a mechanical engineer that also knows structural is so powerful because that's when you get to be a perfect uh, kind of a block into that specific industry so deciding is really important and how can one get into that i think it's it's the crucial answer that people would want to know you know but it's hard it's not yeah yeah i think uh i, I would say at least in my life uh I have I have been lucky that uh, things that I'm interested in have led to sort mm -hmm. of a very interesting yeah. career. Um, I'm probably sort of less personally ambitious and certainly less planned in my progression through my life than yeah. other people might be. Mm. Um, you Was know, it to be, readings? I mean, did you read maybe more than others? <laughs> I say like I, outside readings. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I mean, I, I always had outside interests. I yeah. mean, obviously, obviously, you know, like when I was taking religious studies courses, you know, that that's a, that's a sort of a, a side, you mm. know, and you know, sort of folklore and other sort of sort of cultural interests that you know, you know, s arose from mm -hmm. just kind of you know not wanting to be bored in my life, right? Mm, <laughs> like yeah, like engineering yeah. wasn't enough, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so and so you have to enrich it with with understanding things from wisdom traditions you need to understand it from understanding how how what you're doing matters to society yeah. mm. and you need to you need to kind of bring in all of these other sort of aspects i think you know so 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 i'm mixed race person my mom's chinese and my dad is caucasian and i think you know kind of mm. growing up sort of with two cultures and going to Chinese school every week, mm. you know, you, you understand a different way of thinking as well wow. and a different way of yeah. seeing the world. Um, I totally agree. And I myself is like not American. So yeah. yeah, I can totally relate to having two cultures in one person. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I think that sort of broadens your view and then sort of growing up with, with parents who also had a very strong, you know, kind of sensitivity to, you know, volunteering with the poor mm -hmm. and things like that. And it gives you a broader view as well that sort of lifts you out of the minutiae of the details of engineering. And yeah. I think you start to ask questions about how can you be socially impactful, you know, with what it is that you do in, in mm. your in your life. Mm. And so I think I always, you know, you know, while clearly the strengths were in the engineering area, there there was always kind of this other piece of sort of ethics mm. and, you know, philosophy and 
and whatnot that I had to feed for myself, mm. um, but also uh, influenced and helped give me an avenue to build skills, some of the soft skills that we were talking about before, or human yeah. skills. I, yeah. I'd rather call them human I skills. I love that. Skills. Yeah, that's better than um, soft skills, actually. I like that more. Yeah, yeah. In, in order to kind of build those up in mm. order to complement mm. what I was doing. Like yeah. the facilitation that I do in training, I learned by running youth groups, mm. you know? Um, and, um, you know, some of the deep listening skills that I use with clients, I learned when I was, you know, companioning homeless people who were working through transitions yeah. into sort of more permanent housing conditions. You know, these types of things from my past experience influence how I'm able to do some of the things that I do professionally. Mm. So I just realized that in this sitting right here, we have a lot of, uh, we have countries across the globe. We have Canada, uh, Russian, Russia, and then we have America, China, and then Kuwait. It's kind of crossing across the entire <laughs> the globe. UN. The diversity group right here. I love it. That's so beautiful. All right. So to close the topic about your education, I also want to ask something that I think about myself a lot. Mm -hmm. And I call, I call this the real world. And I, I usually ask this to, my, to the scientists we have in the show. And you're mm -hmm. the first engineer, mm -hmm. professional engineer, I should say. Uh, and uh, it's when do you realize, when do you think you're ready to enter the real world? I think a lot of people, for example, because my reference would be towards academia with mm -hmm. PhD, you get four years of research, and then some people would think, you know what, I want to keep going, I want to do a postdoc. Mm -hmm. And then with that, you keep, so it's that fear of like, am I ready to enter the real world? Mm -hmm. or, or when was it for you, and what do you think is a good sign that tells you, okay, this is the time I should leave? Well, when I say real world, it's the career. So the, so, so, <laughs> I just call so, it real world. So, yeah. there, so there's two ways to approach that. One mm -hmm. is when the money runs out. <laughs> <laughs> that, actually, Guy kind of was saying, thinking the but same I thing about PhD. I literally said the same thing. I would be rushing through that PhD, like, <laughs> get me out. I, I'm, like, done in one year. They're like, how'd you do it? I'm like, I needed a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah. so, so I, think um, I mean, I think, the, I think the value of internships is is oh, unquestionable yeah. right that that using internships to be able to feel what it's like it's not like people are not working when they're in academia i mean most most people have a side gig to yeah. like pay the bills yeah but it's it's kind of working in that professional setting and sort of using the things that you have been trained but in a in a sort of a, a a practical way for co commercial benefit to some mm. extent, right? Yeah. Because when you're in academia, it's all about learning. And, and, and sometimes the way I talk about it is, um, you know, uh, you know, in people's sort of developmental cycle when they're uh, learning a task, right? Mm. They start very enthusiastic, but not very competent. And then, and then they kind of grow and they usually hit an obstacle, a cognitive obstacle that they need to overcome. And then they get the idea of the thing. Mm. And that's where it stops in academia. And then you just go back to the next thing that you need to learn. You keep doing that cycle. But in the professional world, you have to break through. Once you know what that idea is, you need to do it regularly enough that you become an expert at it mm. and that other people trust you to do it. Yeah. And that's the difference is that it's not just about you gaining ideas at, like acquiring knowledge it's about you then converting it to sort of commercial or social benefit mm. in the professional world and how you do that and how you do that in a way that is repeatable and reliable is the moment of professionalism mm. so if you can experience that during an internship that you're given some level 
post-learning of autonomy to deliver that, you know, that's the feedback that we usually see, um, you know, that people are really driven in the professional world by seeking mastery, autonomy, mm. and camaraderie to some extent, or purpose. Yeah. And so if you can get those three things out of the projected sort of professional mm -hmm. engagement that you go into, um, or at least you have a path in the culture of that organization that will help you to achieve those three things, um, that's probably the right fit, right? Mm -hmm. And then for me, you know, I, I pursued the Masters of Engineering because it was much more practical. Again, yeah. it had two minors associated with it, mm -hmm. which, which, so I got the structural engineering degree and then the masters were in uh, science and math education and oh, nice. um, construction management. And, and so those were sort of like, you know, I always have side gigs, right? Yeah. In terms <laughs> of my, um, my own learning, yeah. like there's the core thing and then there's the supplementary things yeah. that sort of round me out in mm. terms of my ability to do the core thing yeah. better and sort of I, a more inclusive way. Yeah, I definitely lead towards you. I think the more you diversify your knowledge within like a, an umbrella of a topic, I think that's how creativity mm -hmm. is created. I don't know. That's just my humble opinion about it. But all right. So we kind of got back to your education let's step forward back to like the present okay. uh, so you've pushed forward your career with a massive name Arup mm -hmm. uh, to our listeners Arup is the, uh, one of the biggest names in the built design industry and we'll we'll keep talking about it as we go with the questions and uh, starting as a graduate engineer mm -hmm. and you've been with them for 26 years and seven months actually to be specific <laughs> mm -hmm. and I think a lot of the things go unsaid and there's a lot to speak about this. Like what is a day in the life of an engineer, engineering consultant? Teach us and show us something about that. You've been there for so many years. Yeah, so, so we are usually subcontracted to mm -hmm. architects here in the United States. Sometimes in other countries we're, subcontract or we're contracted directly to the owner. Yeah. So essentially what we do is we provide sort of engineering technical support design services to support architectural visions for, you know, whatever the a building might be. Right. Mm. And so we work across a wide variety of uh, building types, whether it's labs or hospitals or museums or office buildings or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of whatever. Yeah. So we apply our engineering skills in order to make sure that, you know, people are comfortable inside, the lights turn on you know the structure mm. stands up <laughs> you know th on. those those <laughs> mundane things you know and uh you know I, mm -hmm. I i like to say especially about mechanical engineering that uh if people don't complain mm -hmm. you've done your job right right mm. if you're comfortable and everything works then like you've done your job but yeah you know it's not super high profile you know usually the architects or the contractors will kind of get the glory but i think I it's the folks <laughs> behind uh you know who who do the legwork in yeah. order to make sure that everything yeah. is working they call it like that there's a name for it in arabic but i'm translating the the anonymous soldier Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because yeah. like he's th this when you go to war there's a lot of the soldiers that their names are unsaid would probably like help but you see the anonymous soldier basically mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's the mechanical engineers yeah. can you say that <laughs> <laughs> we think, are the strong general not soldiers <laughs> yeah i mean i think there's a lot of you know i think we always forget just how collaborative the design process is in mm. order to create uh to create a building yeah you know i i i sometimes say you know to some of the grads you know for the privilege of working on grand designs we, we mm. must be collaborative, right? Yeah. So, all right. And also to kind of quote it, 
you are at the end of the day. And again, that question is actually inspired by a book I'm reading in parallel to Cradle to Cradle, which is mm -hmm. Lean In. Mm -hmm. uh, and it talks about uh, the, the idea of a woman being a CEO, uh, Cheryl, and she describes it. I like her name. She had an ch entire chapter about it, Jungle Gym versus like the ladder. Mm -hmm. And you started as a graduate engineer and you're all the way to a fellow principal at mm -hmm. Arab. So mm -hmm. what's your thoughts on that being a woman uh, in this industry? Um, Was there I any struggles, or did you see that th the the concept that we I'm reading and educating myself about? Yeah, I the glass roof, uh, the glass ceiling. Yeah, the glass, glass ceiling. ceiling. Or yeah, yeah. Glass roof is nice. You <laughs> <laughs> look at the stars. Um, so I I haven't I personally haven't felt like there's been a glass ceiling. Yeah. I I I have a habit mm -hmm. of. Um, you know, n not necessarily being personally ambitious, mm. you know, like there, there were definitely times where I turned down promotions, mm. um, just because, you know, I was kind of getting good at what I was doing and mm. like wanted to stay there a little bit mm. longer. Mm. Um, so I think I'm probably not the right person to ask about that. And if people actually, actually have a lot of personal ambition, I think I've always had a lot of ambition about, doing excellent work i've always had a lot of ambition about kind of pushing my firm mm -hmm. forward on on certain key things yeah and helping to lead in some of those initiatives i've always had a lot of ambition about helping to support other people to build teams mm. um usually in order to do those initiatives mm. or just to do great work so so i think for me you know I guess when you think about the jungle gym and sort of sort of lateral ways of providing leadership, mm. um, certainly I've done that, right? I've done that both through the, tr the training programs, done it through leading the diversity work, done yeah. it through being a trustee, done it, you know, through some of the work that I'm doing now in the decarbonization and net zero carbon space. Mm -hmm. And those, those are things beyond the projects that you volunteer for because you know that it's kind of good for your firm and you mm. know that it's something that's interesting for you and in each one of those things I had to independently study and read and and get up to speed to become the leader that my colleagues needed right mm -hmm. like I I did not start by being a diversity and inclusion expert but by the end of it I was a certified diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. professional right because we needed that right mm -hmm. and so and so I've always felt like like my growth in conjunction with the firm's growth comes from sort of being, you know, being, being one who could be on that leading edge to invite people along by doing some mm -hmm. of the heavy lifting mm -hmm. associated yeah. with the collection of knowledge yeah. and then dissemination of knowledge in a way that's accessible to the engineering mind. Mm. But now I'm going to kind of have a weird shift from that's that fine. question to the co other question is, do you feel also being an American and working in a global company such as Arab, mm -hmm. do you feel like that gave you the privilege to be heard and work better than other people from different societies that are not coming from a big name such as Arab? And how do you think this is affecting us as a society or the entire world working in sustainability? Well, I yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's no question that... Um, sustainable solutions are solutions that have to rise from engagement with the 
the the communities that are most affected mm. i think there's been too much history of a colonial mindset period mm-hmm. and and that a lot of the current degradation of communities and environments around the world come from past colonialist views mm-hmm. and we can't bring that kind of an idea that um, that the western economies have a solution for others yeah and i think it's very important for us to figure out ways to allow sort of as local as possible the actions to be coming out of community because they're the experts on what they need Mm. and i think we have a lot to learn from not so much engineers but from our friends in the planning community about how to facilitate conversations that build community resilience, mm-hmm. build re- community strength, and give a platform for community voice to express what they need from mm. the sustainability agenda. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that. that's that's super important yeah. for us to remember. And I think, you know, the shift from how the UN handled the Millennium Development Goals to the folks that they engaged with to create the um, UN Sustainable Development Goals, which came out in 2015, mm-hmm. they invited many more civil society organizations and NGOs, including the faith community, to say, like, how can this work? What what voices need to be at the table? And mm. I think it's a much stronger framework, um, much more ambitious framework that's going to mm. be much harder to do by 2030, yeah. especially given the pandemic and the variety of things that are happening right now. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it became the you know, a better sort of um, morality grounded uh, framework um, for for kind of moving forward, right? Yeah. It's 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 a it's a social ethics framework mm-hmm. and, and the first global social ethics framework that transcends and is adopted by the majority of the wisdom traditions. Yeah. So going back to being a principal and a fellow at Arab, mm-hmm. what is that what these are to me, they sound very like heavy, like they have a weight to it. What uh, what kind of weight do these positions put on you, and what does that even mean for us not part of that industry? Yeah, so so a, a principal uh, is sort of the top, at least in the United States, it's the it's the top grade mm. in the company. We ha- we have only. Uh, basically eight grades and We're then sitting with the top person and then an intern <laughs> i'm not the top person in the company so it's like school grade one two three and then you top, become principal top sustainability. <laughs> a, little, a, little bit, a little bit like you start that. as a student they become the principal that's cool <laughs> so, so we have a, so we have a lot of principals so do you, do you so ground so the young engineers so they're, yeah, <laughs> no. um so so i mean people who are principals are responsible for um you know sort of the organizational, mm. uh, the h- highest level of organizational leadership within the firm, obviously, yeah. you know, there are leaders up and down sort of the grade levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, you know, the principals are responsible for, you know, financial accountability of the projects yeah. and, and of the offices and whatnot. And, mm. and you know, responsible to kind of keep the, the company solvent and, yeah. and going, right? Because yeah. we are an employee-owned firm. So if mm. we're not making money, Mm. Um, we don't have a company anymore, wow. right? Yeah. And so, you know, we're not we're not publicly traded. We're not getting capital from the markets. Yeah. So, you know, how well we do and the excellence of our work and our reputation mm-hmm. 
is is what leads to the success of the company and so mm. as a principal that's part of my responsibility is you know throughout the organization to ensure that people understand that they understand their contribution to our success yeah and then you know that all feeds back you know every every six months when we get yeah. profit share right yeah and so um but it allows for self-investment it allows for um you know us to take a longer term view than mm. a quarterly view yeah um in terms mm. of how we're growing the firm and investing in supporting collaborative research with other m mostly you know industry or non-governmental organizations in the spaces that we think we should be mm. and and that's where some of mm. our investments with the climate action yeah and and key organizations is really moving forward i mm. like that because I, I i always have a personal problem with a lot of more shareholder focused capitalism because it's it's basically and now they have all these B Corps mm -hmm. being made, which I think is just a more responsible way to do business. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, right, it's better to ensure the long term, uh, your long term investment than the short term return. I would rather mm -hmm. have money for longer than to just have it now, <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. you know, consistently. Yeah. And I think as, you know, basically a knowledge work organization, right, you have to be continually self-investing in knowledge building and research. And then, you know, that happens in engineering because you have practical problems to solve with mm -hmm. other people. Yeah. So what about the concept of that? You've worked for 27 years and six months? 26 and seven. S 26 and seven. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> so what about, have you ever thought about getting your own MEP firm or office? Never. Wow. And we need to know why. I'm curious. <laughs> we need to know it. We need that, Aaron. No, I'm kidding. So um, <laughs> I don't really have entrepreneurial uh. Uh, skills, right? So I'm quite happy being an employee. Mm. Um, and But being a good employee, right? Like of course, when I yeah. When I got my ethical leadership master's, I was very drawn to the idea of followership, right? Mm. That yes, yes, I am a leader, but also I'm a pretty great follower too, right? Mm. Like I don't need to be the person at the top. Mm. But uh, but I'm very good at understanding how align how to align the work that I do yeah. with the overall strategy of, of the the topmost yeah. principals within the firm, um, who who are on our group board mm. or who are on our regional boards, right? And yeah. and to ensure that you know that those ideas become reality, right? Mm. I I always say you know if you have a task force where you need to take an idea and make it a reality. I'm your person, mm. but don't have me sitting around in That's board meetings. That's very powerful. You know? I, I think I think what I sense from you is that you you know yourself so well, and I think that's the key to I think success success because you said I don't want to be an entrepreneur, but then yet you've you've mastered you became a fellow and uh, principal and Arab. So yeah. I think if you know what you want and you yeah. you leverage what you're good at, mm -hmm. this is the key for success. Yeah, and, and I and think that solidifies it. Yeah, and like so, the like the fellows position in Arab as well mm -hmm. as in the American Society of Pm Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Engineers, like those are recognitions of technical excellence, right? Yeah. And then and then within Arab, you know, there are responsibilities associated with, you know, being available to the junior mm -hmm. engineers, doing reviews and whatnot, yeah. but also. You know, the fellows are who folks come to when they need some of these initiatives to be mm -hmm. led, and so yeah. this is part of the reason why I'm sort of tapped. Um, in support of our, um, you know, Sustainable Futures Master Program, mm. as well as the Whole Life Carbon Initiative. Yeah. That that happened because, you know, I was talking with a bunch of other fellows and they needed a spare yeah. body 
and I could pick that up. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that you actually just answered the following question because I was going to say, how did you deviate towards sustainability as a mechanical engineer? And I think, was that doing your being a fellow? Can I answer it with basically? No, no. I mean, that goes much further back. I mean, oh. really, you couldn't have been a mechanical engineer through the 1990s and early 2000s without incorporating sustainability, mm. right? Like, you know, yeah. the, the, the U.S. Green Building Council arose mm. in the mid... Yeah. Well, you're studying for LEED. Yeah. So yeah, rose yeah. during the, the mid-1990s. Yeah. Um, and so really starting to advise clients, uh, especially, you know, mechanical engineering is seen to be kind of one of the greatest discretion Mm. Um, energy users in a building mm -hmm. um, that you know really mechanical engineers became the point f people for doing energy modeling yeah. in, in order to provide you know basically do optioneering in order to advise architects about how to reduce mm -hmm. energy use in buildings and so that was right at the core mm. of a lot of what we were doing yeah so now that we got into the juicy part I'll say the sustainability because I have a few questions about sure. that and uh, Again, that's my perspective, somebody that is passionate about sustainability. I think it's one of the most talked about topics, mm -hmm. I would say, us being engineers and like in the science world right now. It's a hot topic, I would say. And I think there's an ocean of information now about sustainability. And it, to an extent, might overwhelm a lot of people that want to learn about it or try and get into it. So I want to start by asking you, like, what does it even mean to be a sustainable engine, sustainability engineer or consultant? Let's kind of start with that. Gotta be. Well, I think, I, well, I think, I mean, with, within industry, mm -hmm. the, the built environment industry, it would be a person who advises other people on strategic um, approaches to design yeah. that and does the analysis to be able to support that mm -hmm. in you know technical way yeah um essentially to help people make decisions mm -hmm. um and document the impact of those yeah. decisions whether it's uh, improved health likely improved health outcomes mm -hmm. reduced carbon emissions yeah reduced energy use whatnot and then also balancing those obviously mm. with with cost yeah. in what we call life cycle cost analysis, right? Yeah. So you know, and so that tends to be what a sustainability consultant does. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes they could be helping you to navigate a, a sustainability rating system like LEED or yeah. others. Um, but you know, it's sort of in that space of consulting. Mm. You know, you bring the expertise. Yeah. I I guess, I guess the goal of that question, because I feel like maybe my wording was a bit also interesting. Mm -hmm. The goal of that question also is, I think, because I'm kinda, I am I believe that also working in a PhD program where it's you start with a very broad field and you're trying to kind of, I like to break down my tasks, mm -hmm. make them simple. And that's how I feel less overwhelmed when I'm trying to work on a big project. Mm -hmm. Say, okay, what's my daily tasks? So mm -hmm. I think with sustainability, it's when you hear about everything and how... Mm -hmm everything is also leading towards, again, that's a, an opinion, I don't want to base it, but like catastrophe when it comes to like the, the consumption and yeah. the greenhouse gas emission usage in the world. So how can, how can one think about the smaller tasks to get into such a field? And I want to also link it to an industry such as Arup. Mm -hmm. Let's say I have my own firm right now and I'm listening to uh, Aaron. Mm -hmm. How can I start getting into this field if I have nothing to do with it right now? Yeah. So, well, I think, 
I think the the, the the place to start is with where you are always, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and really understand the why behind the interests, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's there's one piece which is sort of corporate social responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you're an organization or just your personal, you know, feeling of responsibility in context of kind of how the world is right now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of what can you do? You know, mm. the easiest thing is always energy efficiency is mm. the place to start. Mm. Then the second place here in California, at least, is what's the source of your energy, right? Because we all have the ability to buy green power. Yeah. You know, which will reduce our carbon footprint associated with our everyday lives. Mm. Then, you know, if you're just an individual, you start looking at travel. Mm-hmm. If you're worried about greenhouse gas emissions, because that's a large part yeah. of it, whether it's your daily commute or, you know, where you fly to um, and how often you do that. Mm. You know, and then I think the other big thing that we're becoming more and more aware of is food waste. Mm. Right. How much food do we waste as as a society? Not only you know, taking food out of the hands of people who need it, but also the, the, the carbon emissions that come from it rotting. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, like if you're talking at the most practical level, like that's what you're talking about. If, if mm. you own assets, then the thing is, how are you going to get ready to transition your assets so that they can actually take advantage of 100% renewable energy, which is mostly going to be electrical energy yeah. or be ready for green hydrogen, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's what people are needing to do at sort of that asset level. And all along that way, we need to ensure that the health and well-being of the occupants of buildings, the surrounding communities, the folks who are working in the supply chain that are giving us all of the materials in order to do these things are also treated in a a manner that Mm -hmm. is... Uh, ensuring their health and well-being and sort of equitable ability to make a living. Yeah. And so I think when you look at it kind of more holistically, like that's what people can be doing. And, and that's kind of, the, you know, the frameworks yeah. that you sort of see in the UN SDGs. I see. So let's let's move on to an interesting perspective in sustainability, too, that I hear about all the time. Commitments. I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, we hear a lot of them. We're hitting net zero by 2040. We're going to be actually hitting net zero like all cars will be electric by 2030 Mm -hmm. what's your thoughts on such commitments do you think these are powerful do you even like them do you think they're realistic somebody this in the field i think the statement of intention and especially the public statement of intention is important Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right it's it's (laughs) it's important as the first step of accountability right yeah and I think that we do need to ask these things of each other, ask for the commitments. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that's what we saw. You know, people made uh, commitments at the Paris Agreement. And mm-hmm. what we learned last year at COP26 is not everybody was on track to meet them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so there's always room for course correction, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I think... You know, there have been a variety of things that have come up in the world that we've had to deal with. You know, life happens. And and uh, but I think if we approach it with good faith. Mm -hmm. Right. And that that companies and countries are trying very hard. I mean, right now, you know, we're going to have to rely on the private sector and the cities, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, 
to really make the movements on climate action mm. um, because it's it's only when you have a personal stake in the matter mm -hmm. at a community level or at a company level and yeah. your own survivability that people have enough sort of personal investment mm -hmm. to make change happen yeah. it's it's whilst we all know at the highest level you know that we collectively need to make changes it's really complicated to do you know those international commitments can't do it alone it's mm -hmm. it's got to really happen yeah. at the community level i mean yeah. at its baseline you can to some extent vote with your dollar like yes. for example i almost exclusively thrift shop for clothing mm -hmm. because oh, yeah. i cannot i just read too much stuff about the fast fashion yeah. industry and yeah. it's like a quarter of emissions it's like enormous yeah so whenever i see h and m i'm like <laughs> like, <'cause> I'm, like <laughs> triggered <laughs> and it sucks the clothing like breaks apart yeah. guy got yeah. me into thrift shopping i'm very excited <laughs> that i it's a new thing that i got myself and yeah. i think i'm gonna stick to it yeah. that's it yeah, yeah and, like to me it's tried and true i'm like well this thing has already existed for 50 years so mm -hmm. it's probably gonna exist for another 50 <laughs> yeah. but i don't know this h&m shirt <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah okay so speaking of the commitments and now we got into like the policy uh, making mm -hmm. part i want to talk about the interplay between i think with those commitments you're connecting science because this is where you conclude that this is basically harming the environment or going to improve and then you get the engineers which are practicing i would say how to in, like communicate it. Yeah, yeah like basically do what mm -hmm. the conclusions were done in science mm -hmm. and then you get also like the policy making aspect mm -hmm. what do you think is the best way to synergize all of these three or is there a, is there a like a tactic do you think the that, way yeah. we're doing it now works or how would they interplay together, would you say? Well, I mean, I think, I think that there is a lot of effort uh, to, to use science-based targets in order to inform p policy, mm -hmm. especially related to climate action. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, the, the, the sector that is missing in the mix that you were just talking about is financing, mm. right? So, so historically, you know, because we are capitalist society yeah. and economies you know we have historically approached um adoption of efficiency measures on the basis of their payback and mm. return on investment and there may not be you know an immediate return on investment by investing in protecting ourselves against climate change and i think that is because we waited a really long time to take action and so we are now going to be bearing the cost both of mitigation, i.e. reduction of carbon emissions, and adaptation, i.e. protecting the, popu the vulnerable populations that are going to be adversely affected by climate change that is already baked into our atmosphere, mm. right? And global warming that's already baked into our atmosphere. And the extreme events that we're paying out billions of dollars every year in order to recover from. And so we're sort of, we're sort of getting hit with the, the double dollar investment because we waited too late mm. but we can't afford to wait any longer yeah. and so having clear policy signals 
that then the private sector can use to mobilize financing because it's related to the organizational resilience of their companies is going to be what unlocks capital. Yeah. And we're already seeing that from BlackRock, right? And they're like, we're gonna evaluate you on sort of how well you're doing on sustainability yeah. and on carbon Whoa. before we give you money. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we have yeah, the, yeah. the green, like uh, the trillion dollar bill here. Mm -hmm. I mean, even right now with Europe, because of the dependency on uh, Russian gas and yep. oil, now it's like, okay, Time to accelerate, like, exactly. you know, time to accelerate our green yeah. adoption. Or, exactly. And yeah, I mean, if BlackRock to me is the, like, the the most, I guess, shrewd, and they, they really have their uh, finger on the pulse of capital markets right now. So mm -hmm. the, them making a move to be like, we're divesting on all our hydrocarbon things yeah. is is a is a clear investor signal yeah and and you know and all that started the divestment movement started mm. in in like the late 2000s mm. with a bunch of kids at Melbury University and Bill McKibben right mm. and 350.org right oh, and that yeah. was a student movement that started trying to Whoa. get colleges to divest from fossil fuels sort of pushing the divestment um yeah you know, efforts, movement similar to what was done with the anti-apartheid movement yeah. for South Africa. And they said, that worked then, let's try it with this. And mm -hmm. it's just grown. And you see all of these corporations sort of yeah. adopting that approach as well. Mm -hmm. Nice, yeah. I mean, I was thinking, I was also gonna, I was, uh, this question was added actually today. It was not, <laughs> so I hope I don't shock you, but it was just very interesting to see your perspective about. I was listening to this podcast called How to Save the Planet by marine biologist Dr. Ayana Johnson. And the episode piqued my interest because the title was uh, basically saying that you cannot save the planet without gender equality. And then that was the title. And then mm -hmm. they talk about, they bring a psychologist and a couple of uh, scientists and they were discussing the fact that women actually are very uniquely critical on climate change and they help better with climate change mitigation. Mm -hmm. And somebody in sustainability working that is also women, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is, do you think you see that as well? It's a very interesting perspective that I really wanted to kind of ask you about. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, so if you look at uh, some research done by Project Drawdown, Mm -hmm. uh, the n number one sort of immediate action that could reduce global warming mm -hmm. uh, is actually refrigerant management mm. and avoiding leaks from all of our HVAC systems yeah. and refrigerators all around the world. But the number two, when you actually combine two of the elements together, has to do with uh, women's empowerment and training of girls. Mm. Um, and, and, and part of that is because uh, economic empowerment of women leads to kind of reinvestment in communities mm. that's been shown through mm. microfinancing, like the Grameen Foundation and other microfinancing organizations, that when women get money to build businesses, they reinvest in the community, the dollars stay in the community, Wow. And the health and well-being of the children is improved, right? Yeah. Because that is sort of the natural tendency of mothers mm. is to look after the next generation. Yeah. And so I think when, when you look at that and then, and then the health outcomes are improved, the educational outcomes are improved, mm -hmm. not only for the girls, but also for across, across those communities, that then there's a platform that, you know, best practices related to agriculture, best practices related to engagement with mm -hmm. nature allows a sort of a, 
of either a return to, to more indigenous um, sort of ways of, of farming because it's economically viable. They're not mm -hmm. as reliant on external forms of uh, investment that are mm -hmm. extractive, quite mm -hmm. frankly, from sort of Western economies coming into those sites of organizations. So I think it's a lot around that mm -hmm. um, in terms of the developing world. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say in the... Um, in the so-called so developed world. Um, clearly, uh, research from the diversity, inclusion, and equity kind of communities have shown that um, boards that have an increased uh, level of parity mm -hmm. um, between men and women on boards tend to make better long-term decisions yeah uh, it's it's less of a, a casino way of running a company yeah uh <laughs> and more of a long-term view <laughs> of running a company right <laughs> casino way <laughs> i'm gonna steal that one yeah. i like it <laughs> yeah because because you know a lot of times not that women are less adverse to risk but i would say that on balance they bring a different perspective to balance how you approach risk mm. as do as do people from sort of non-dominant racial backgrounds mm. right as soon as you're the non-dominant person in the room you have to come to that conversation with a more considered mm. argument wow. right yeah. and and a lot of times you do more re research mm. um you know coming to that organization mm -hmm. um and so you not only bring your own lived experience perspective but you also bring all of that knowledge and your interpretation of that knowledge mm to the conversation. And I think that is part of why greater mm. gender equity yeah. um, will lead to better outcomes. Mm. I see, yeah. So going back to kind of like more uh, work and like science and research is, I'm really curious about how do you integrate specific scientific advancements like at a corporate scale or with clients? Like, do you keep up to date with scientific literature or if you find things like, I don't know, just ra randomly, like, let's say some client's like, okay, I want to build this building. You're like, have you thought about using, I don't know, mushroom bricks or something? Like, how do you, how, like, is that, is that something that happens or how do you do such a thing? <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm very lucky to work for an organization that self-invests in knowledge building and mm -hmm. we have, um, we have access every year to research funding. People can basically apply, um, articulate whatever it is that they're interested in, um, and then work with others in order to, um, you know, develop that knowledge to see if it could be practical. Mm -hmm. So yes, we have done projects with mushroom bricks. <laughs> we, we, we supported the, 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 I think one of the first, uh, mushroom brick, mushroom sort of bricks, mushroom bricks. <laughs> uh, you know, pilot, pilot buildings in, in New York a, a few yeah. years back. Um, to test it, you know, and we, we saw what worked, what didn't work, you know, they get soggy after a while. So, I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, there's different formulations and that, you know, and so, you know, I'm lucky that I work with an organization that self-invests self that way. Yeah. And it's not a, we don't have like a, a consolidated, like independent, often a corner research team, actually people who are from the projects who get exposed to some of these ideas mm -hmm. can just kind of raise their hand and apply you know, for yeah. little little grants yeah. in the year to test stuff out. Mm. Um, you also worked on building a lot of museums. Mm -hmm. I love art. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> so, um, you know, you you worked on The Broad. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, uh, The Broad is probably one of my favorite collections. Yep. So 
That's good. What is like, um, I mean, obviously they're filled with all this priceless, irreplaceable things. Yes. What do you have to consider when, I mean, there's like, there's like stressful engineer and then there's like, okay, well, if any of this stuff is destroyed, it's never coming yeah. back. Like yeah. I can always the rebuild paintings, a building, yeah. but I cannot, you know. I think the humidity, like, yeah, but I would, I'm curious <laughs> what goes with that. Yeah, so so it is very much about maintaining stable humi humidity yeah. and, and temperature, but also, you know, special filtration mm. uh, to, to get all of the pollutants out of the air before it comes in because, yeah. because you do have higher humidities um, if you allow any of those typical pollutants that you see sulfur dioxide nitrous oxides yeah. right out from the environment if we mm. don't filter those out they become yeah. like many many droplets of sulfuric acid or, oh, or yeah. nitric acid that yeah. can start to accumulate on the face of a painting or yeah. whatnot so we have to be very careful about that so yeah. filtration uh, temperature and humidity stability mm. and then because what what you don't want is you know especially with any textile based you know, or, or any of the sort of physical material-based materials, you don't, you don't want swings in temperature relative humidity because the sort of fibers of the actual underlying, you know, element that the art is built on will swell and contract and swell and contract and swell and contract mm. over time if you don't yeah. control that. And that's what ends up degrading art. Yeah. And then the other piece is obviously daylight. You want to only have indirect light coming in. Daylight is great. Sunlight is bad because yeah. sunlight is what <laughs> basically fades <laughs> things. And then yeah. even with daylight and, and, and electric light, there's only a certain amount of sort of uh, light exposure that you can um, expose an artifact hmm. to and uh, before it starts to fade just from natural chemical forces. Uh, so mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that we all have to look at when we're designing museums. <laughs> Uh, is all for <laughs> that yeah. stability and and you're absolutely right i i kind of joke when when we bring young engineers onto those projects i'm like the stuff that's inside the building is like multiple multiple times more worth multiple multiple, multiple times more than the actual building yeah like one <laughs> of those yeah like a like a you know there's so many basquiats in the road it's like yeah. one of those is worth like 200 million dollars wow. that's the building yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so but well then technically that now you're making me think that the hvac engineers are the main stars for designing museums <laughs> I well, would say, the, and the, yet they don't get a lot of the credit. The lighting, <laughs> the lighting folks would say that they are. Oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, you have to yeah. look at redundancy. You have to look at backup situations. Yeah. You know, you really catastrophe. need. Yeah. Yeah. We also need that we collectively complete each other because the architect works with like also the how you get the natural lighting. Oh, yeah. So I guess Absolutely. I guess I should not be selfish because I'm a mechanical engineer. Yeah, if there's no the light, stars. you can't see the work. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first problem. <laughs> well, if there's not us, would like give it a year and it will go away with humidity you see so unless, unless you put it all in palm spring not seeing it <laughs> or actually degrading it what's more powerful so <laughs> takes a village takes a village <laughs> let's yeah let's settle with like us being a team yeah i like that um <laughs> did you have any uh, particular role models when you were growing up that like inspired you i think you said that your dad had sent you to uh, like a summer camp for engineers was y that would you say that was like pivotal yeah, I think I think it was pivotal. It's actually kind of funny. My so my dad was like a biology and chemistry high school teacher, mm. and he was trying to get some of so like the Society of Women Engineers having this free camp, and um, and uh, he couldn't get any of his students to go. But you know, I had this history yeah. of you know <laughs> taking stuff apart and putting stuff back together with my grandpa, and and so he like called him up and said, "Well, my daughter's not 
date in high school yet, but would you mm -hmm. take her? And they're like, yeah, we're taking anybody. <laughs> so Whoa. yeah, that was, a, that was a pivotal moment because, you know, they had to sit down and they had us like draw in perspective and it was the most fun thing ever. Yeah. And I was really good at it, which apparently 3D visualization is, is not something mm -hmm. that um, a whole lot of girls are, are sort of taught to, yeah. to have or develop because, you know, there's, there's been studies that kind of show that, um, you know, you know, young boys are encouraged to the toys, at least at that time that they were mm -hmm. given yeah. to put things together. Whereas, mm. whereas girls were not, but, but when, when I was young, my brother was given a giant tinker toy set, like, I mean, giant tinker toys, you know, like, <laughs> and I basically took it over, you oh, know, wow. and I was like building swings for Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> you know, I was building little houses yeah, for my brother and so like cool. shaking them like they were in an earthquake, <laughs> you know, so there were very early indications that uh, maybe I had some engineering yeah, inclinations. Yeah. And so, you know, my parents figured, let's, let's get her into one of these programs, you know, mm. and then when I was going to college, it's like, yeah, it'd be good. She gets some training. So, mm. You know, she doesn't just take things apart mm -hmm. and destroy <laughs> things, but, you know, she can actually translate that into some productive yeah. kind of design in a professional career. Did yeah. you have, like, another interest? Like, um, other guests we've had, they're, like, sport. They, they really like sports, and the yeah. sports, like, made them very, I don't know, focused on their tasks at hand. Yeah, so, so the whole time kind of growing up, I was always balancing piano lessons, mm. Chinese school, real school, church <laughs> and then yeah. um and then when i got into um junior high school and high school then I, in sports right yeah um so i you know so there's always that combination of um kind of moving between these these spaces right and these really different ways of thinking about the world that mm -hmm. i think have been really great um and then when i was in high school i started um learning to play the organ Oh which, my God! Which was so I love the organ. Which which is so <laughs> so much fun, and yeah. um and I got to exposed to um Albert Schweitzer, mm. uh who was this you know humanitarian who basically left his entire career in Europe, studied to become a doctor, and then was a medical missionary, and he he was quite fascinating. He was also he he basically left a, a sort of a theology and philosophy. Um, professorship um, in Europe in order to do this and and his ideas about reverence for life that he developed while he was um, in the Gambron you know really influenced me as a child like mm. that uh, or as a teenager right that that this idea that everything is connected mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and should be respected as life itself and that whatever we do with our lives should be supporting sort of the upholding of the reverence for life and the continuing of life. Mm. And I think that clearly sort of weaves through kind of where I invest and, and how I talk some, to some extent yeah. about sustainability. It comes from that belief that, you know, even, even the poor are, you know, have valuable lives and that we should not be leaving them behind mm. as we move forward into yeah. a world mm -hmm. which is a long-term sustainable yeah. world. I love that. So on that note, um, have you ever, do you ever, have you ever played like SimCity or anything, any of those <laughs> like construction virtual games? <laughs> way, way back. Or, okay. Way back. <laughs> I used to love them actually also. I used to always play them. Um, so imagine you're kind of given a key and free reign and infinite money, um, you know, and you get to create your own 
well-funded, reputable institution that you can fill with scientists, engineers, whatever you want. Money is no object. How do you picture your utopic institution? So you can like paint a picture for us or even like t concepts that you would want in place in it. Yeah. So you already heard I wasn't an entrepreneur. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what I would, so what I would create would be an NGO, and mm. what it would be focused on would be supporting local communities to gather people across sectors to mm. kind of figure out how they could collaboratively develop a sustainable sort of way forward mm, grassroots like ecosystemically mm. ecosystemically because because i'm definitely convinced that if sort of private sector financing and public sector you know concerns for for community well-being got together mm -hmm. and and saw how much they have aligned mm -hmm. with what they want the ultimate outcomes to be and mm -hmm. that there was a way to help facilitate that in a way that broke down barriers and ensured that you know the folks from the community had a voice to mm -hmm. shape what they wanted their futures to be we could help to support a bunch of little experiments that yeah. were hyper localized but globally relevant mm -hmm. and yeah. that you know that it could build momentum yeah. of faster action than waiting for things to trickle down from bureaucracy bureaucracy down. yeah. downwards that there needs to be especially in the face of you know the current sort of climate catastrophe mm -hmm. you know to have that grassroots yeah. permission to take action yeah um with appropriate solutions mm. so but but it needs all all parts right yeah. Yeah. and and you know sometimes we we stay too much in our silos and so mm -hmm. i think you know we really need to see people need to come back to the idea that they're planting a stake and that this is this is my community this is where i'm investing and literally investing mm -hmm. um, my efforts my money you know and yeah. and if you keep the dollars local there's an incentive to keep improving mm -hmm. and and so you know, even though I work for a global firm, you know, that's something that multinationals really need to think about mm. is how do you continuously invest as if you're staying, right? Mm. Um, and to make a healthy place for all. Mm. Wow, Aaron. That's I what I would do uh, if wow, I was like, wow, I'm, had I'm amazed. infinite There's amount of hearts money. in my <laughs> eyes, right? The emoji, heart emoji. <laughs> this is me. I'm like, Aaron, wow. <laughs> Uh, I can keep going talking with you about this, but unfortunately we are reaching an end and we have one game that we like to play with you and it's called the one game where basically we ask you a question and you have to answer with one thing. So okay. the one word. Uh, mm. it's it's more of the, we start like with an answer one thing like one thing it doesn't have to be a word but then we actually close it with one word we say a word the association game. Okay. So rules of the game that you're allowed one pass. If you don't feel like if it's too much to answer in one thing and you can actually throw a question back to either me or guy that you okay. rather have us answer instead of you okay. so these are the two rules okay. otherwise you have to answer we're not letting you out of the studio so. okay. <laughs> all, right. all right starting the game so what is the one thing you hate the most about being an engineer paperwork <laughs> i knew it. I, was, <laughs> I was thinking that in my head right now what's the it. one thing you fear the most in engineering that that we won't have the right kinds of influence mm, that's mm -hmm. a good one who's the one person in history dead or alive you want to have dinner with and why 
Albert Schweitzer. Why? Because I've, I've admired him, and I want to understand that moment where he decided to give up all of his success in order to serve people. But to open a bracket, who is he for the people who don't know oh, him? She explained earlier. Explained oh, earlier. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. he's a medical missionary uh, in the early yeah. part of the 20th century. Okay, got it. Uh, what's the one personality trait you wish you had? I feel like I was. I wish I was a little more comfortable in social situations. I'm quite the introvert, mm. so I, 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 it would it would be helpful if it was more comfortable when I had this heart, you know, casually with larger groups of people. I see. What's the one pet peeve you have? Not pet. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is me screwing up the English second language. I thought when I saw that question, it means what the one pet you like. <laughs> but well, yeah, one pet peeve you have. I think my pet peeve is when it feels like people aren't bringing their best to the to the table. Mm, that's a good one. What's the one most common white lie you use? She's <laughs> not giving that one up. <laughs> then they'll all know. I'll, I'll turn that back to you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that I'll be here in 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm always, I feel like that's a hard one. <laughs> What's the one most common... Oh, sorry, we asked that. What's the one most common compliment you get? I think the one that I get is that I'm smart. Mm. And, and, I, and I always yes, hope... Yes, you are. I always hope <laughs> that they also think that I'm kind. Oh. Absolutely, I can see that. That's why I'm having the heart emojis when you talked <laughs> about your utopia. I'm like, wow. What's the most influential movie you've seen or book you've read? Uh, I don't know. I think um, I have to pass. I have to pass. Yeah, it's not. It's okay. not that I'm not. It's not that I'm it's not. Hard. It's just. It's, it's a tough one, actually. It's, yeah. It's like a recall thing, right? In yeah. the moment, right? Yeah. What trait about yourself would you wish everyone else had? Good listening skills. Mm. Yeah, well, what minor superpower would you love to have? Minor superpower. <laughs> minor superpower. Yeah, like making <laughs> making sandwiches appear or like, you know. Flying would be a major superpower. Yeah, n nothing. Yeah. Or like knowing where your keys are at every <laughs> at any <Yeah>. moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, I think... It, it, increased amount of empathy like mm. you know like deanna troy in deep space nine mm. er, i'm sorry no no no. next generation <laughs> mm. okay interesting so all right we're ending with the one association game we say one word and you have to you have to tell us what's the one word that comes in through your mind with this so we're starting with green blue love heart california sun art <laughs> Museum. <laughs> Civilization. Lasting. Cog. A cog. Gear. Fear. Hope. Burrito. Taco. <laughs> Future. Good. Order. Chaos. Erin, <laughs> cool. thank you so much for being here. And we've learned you showed up. We're honored to meet you. The Fancy Lab Coat Guild is lucky to have you. Yes, thank yeah. you so much. Thank, thank you for you. having me. It's been fun. <laughs> of course. Yes, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>